The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. I've entitled our message this morning, The Tables Have Turned. The Tables Have Turned. And before I get into the actual text today, I want to talk a little bit about 1 Samuel, because as of right now, my plan is to preach through 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, It's going to take a bit of a time, but we're going to make our way through there, taking some uh, normal holiday breaks and the like, but we'll work our way through these uh, two books. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel, or in the Hebrew Bible, it's just the book of Samuel. It's all one, one book. Uh, they're referred to as the former prophets. In our English Bibles, those would be Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Um, that section refers to the former prophets. And some of our most favorite and beloved Bible stories, they come out of these two books. Uh, There's the birth of Samuel, which we'll be looking at today. Uh, There's David and Goliath, David's friendship with Jonathan. There's the anointing of David as king over Israel. Uh, There's David, or excuse me, God's special covenant that he makes with David to be king. Um, And so we'll be looking at all those stories in the weeks and months ahead. But there are also some sobering stories and warnings found in these two books. Um, There's, for example, Saul's unlawful sacrifice. Uh, There's Saul and the witch or medium at Endor. Uh, There's a story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, The story of Uzzah and the ark where he reaches out to touch the ark and the Lord strikes him dead on the spot. Um, There's the conspiracy of David's son, Absalom, as Absalom tries to overthrow his uh, dad to become king. And so you might say over the course of this sermon series, we're going to be looking at both the good and the bad of Israel's history. But in all told, uh, you know, when... Israel's history is, is centuries long. First and second Samuel from beginning to end is probably less than a century. And so we're looking at just a small portion of Israel's history. But what we're going to see in these two books is we're going to see that the theme here is that we're looking for a king after God's own heart. And we're going to see the sovereign hand of God at work as he prepares his people for that coming king. And so there's a little bit of the background uh, for us. Let's hear from the word of the Lord now. If you're there in 1 Samuel, say amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 through through verse 11 of chapter 2. So it's a a little bit long of a reading today, but let's jump into this. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah and his wife and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. 
though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him then I, excuse me, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor, razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took with him, or she, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord." And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed, and bows, the bows of the mighty are broken. 
but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The king, excuse me, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and so we pray now, Lord Jesus, in the hearing of your word, that you would use this time now to mold us and shape us into the men and women you would have us be. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know what it is to trust in your son, to trust in the king, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, Father, that today you would open their hearts to trust in him. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note taker, here's our central idea for today's message, is that God is always working in our lives for our good and for his glory. God is always working in our lives for our good and for his glory. And today's text, it really, it tells a story of something that happened um, in ancient Israel. And when I use the word story, I, I don't want you to think like this is some magical story or some fantastic story. This is, these are true to life events that happen. And so this story uh, tell, or this passage tells a story and I've broken the story up into five parts. So Part one is troubles brewing, troubles brewing. We see this in verses one and two. The author starts off by saying there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And so right away, the author is setting for us this narrative in its historical context. Not only are we told who this certain man is, the certain man, of course, is Elkanah, uh, but we're also given his family pedigree all the way back to his great-great-grandfather. Now, here's what that does for us as, as readers. That gives us a certain confidence that this story is indeed true. You see, our our confidence is ratcheted up a bit that this is an historically accurate account because it can be verified by historical actors. Now, we we could look to other books in the Bible. We could look, for example, to the book of Chronicles, and we could see that this really is the family tree of Elkanah, that this is indeed a true story. And so that's step one. The author has given us a reason to believe that this is indeed a plausible story. But then notice what happens in verse 2. The author tells us just rather matter-of-factly that the man has two wives. Now let me submit to you that nothing good ever happens 
when a man has two wives. And here, I'm, this is not anything against a wife. wife. A wife is a wonderful thing. But when you have two wives or multiple wives, nothing good is ever going to happen. And to be clear, he's not talking about a man who had one wife and that wife died and then he had another wife. That's not at all what he's saying. He, he has two wives at the same time. And so what are we to make of this statement? Because after all, don't we as Christians believe that the Bible teaches we're only supposed to have one spouse? You know, a husband's supposed to have one wife, a wife's supposed to have one husband, period, right? And, and yes, that is indeed what the Bible teaches. When Adam was created, God made for Adam one suitable spouse. He named her Eve. He didn't create for Adam, Eve, and Jennifer, and Catherine. That's, that's not what he made Eve. One man, one woman, that's been God's plan from the beginning. And God still intends for a husband to have only one wife. But if that's true, you might be thinking, why do we have so many stories, so many stories in the Bible of men with multiple wives? I mean, after all, Elkanah, he's not the only one. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that there are other people in the Bible who have multiple wives. King David has multiple wives. King Solomon Uh, like just outdid everybody in multiple wives. He had hundreds of wives. Jacob, who's one of the patriarchs of Israel, Israel is named after Jacob, had multiple wives. And so we could go on and on in naming men who had multiple wives. But hear me well, without exception, every time we read a story of a man who had multiple wives, there is always difficulty that follows. Always, without exception. But if the Bible, again, if it teaches that husbands are supposed to have only one wife, again, why so many stories? And here's the answer. We have so many stories of men with multiple wives because the Bible is an honest book. All right? Let me repeat that. The Bible is an honest book. The Bible doesn't, so if you've ever wondered, I wonder if this Bible, if, if, can I trust the Bible? Is it just kind of painting uh, you know, the followers of, of God? Is it kind of painting them with rosy colored picture and it's, you know, it's doing all the best things? That's, that's not what the Bible does. The Bible gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly. It does not paint a picture, of this rosy colored picture of our lives in this broken world. And so we live in a world that's broken because of sin and the Bible is honest about our shortcomings. And not only honest about our shortcomings, the Bible's honest about like even some of the heroes of the Bible. We're going we're gonna to learn here in 1 Samuel that King David is called a man after God's own heart. And David had multiple wives, and, not, and that was kind of the least of his problems. He had, he, I mean, that man had some serious shortcomings. But nevertheless, he's called a man after God's own heart. And so we learn that Elkanah has two wives. And again, nothing good is going to happen. The Bible's not suggesting that it's okay to have multiple wives. It's simply describing the reality that existed. But then right on the heels of that, notice this right there in verse 2, right on the heels of learning that he has two wives, we're given an even deeper dive, a deeper look into Elkanah's family dynamics. We learn that the name of one of his wives is Hannah. And the name of the other was Panina. And right away we learn that Panina had children. Now, we don't know how many children, but she had at least four children, because later on in the text, it, it talks about her sons, plural, and her daughters, plural. So it's at least four. She may very well may have had more than four. But Hannah, we're told in verse 2, all we're told at this point is that she doesn't have children. So let, let's stop right there for just a moment. You see, Hannah lives in a culture 
where a woman's primary worth to the family is measured in how many children she can produce for the family. Okay, that's, that's the culture that she lives in. In a day when infant and childhood mortality would have been much higher than it is today, and in an age when children meant increased productivity for the house and increased productivity on the farm, a woman's worth was measured by how many children she could produce. Now add to that dynamic that your husband has two wives and the other wife isn't having any problem getting pregnant and having children. And so this is enough pressure to drive any woman to despair. And so right away in these first two, two verses, we know that trouble's brewing. Okay? Trouble's brewing. Let's move on to point number two. This is verses three through eight. In verses three through eight, right away, uh, right away, we, we learn that despite Elkanah's sin in having multiple wives, we learn that he was otherwise a devout man. Year after year, in verses 3 through 8, we see that he leaves Ramah, he goes up to Shiloh to worship. And now, it's not a particularly long journey, by the way, from Ramah to, to Shiloh. It's only maybe 15 miles or so. But year after year, without fail, he, makes, he takes the family, they make that pilgrimage, and they go there specifically, the text tells us, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. We're also introduced here in this passage, in this portion of the passage, to the priest, Eli and to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Eli is going to play a very prominent role in the opening chapters of of Samuel. His sons, however, Hophni and Phinehas, they are absolutely worthless. Okay, and I don't, that's not me saying that. The Bible says that about them. They are worthless. We'll read more about them next week, and so I'll hold off on that till next week. But as Alcana, as he offers the family sacrifice, it's a, it would have been a peace offering that he gives. So he gives, he gives a, a bull for a peace offering. Uh, a large portion of that meat would come back to the family so that they could literally feast on the offering as they celebrate now the peace that they have with God. And as they celebrate, we learn that Alcana would give a portion of that sacrifice to Panina. He would give a portion of that sacrifice to each of Panina's children. But then in verse 5, we're told that he gives a double portion to Hannah because he loves her. But now in contrast to Elkanah's love for Hannah, in verse 6, we notice that Panina is grievously provoking Hannah. It's as if Panina is looking for every opportunity she can find to remind Hannah that she doesn't have children. Oh, look, here's number five. Oh, look, here's number six. How many do you have yet, Hannah? Oh, that's right, none. You don't have any. Every opportunity to rub salt in Hannah's wound. And notice this, beloved. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like she had a bad day and like, I'm, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have treated you that way. I was, I was out of line. This went on year after year. And so this, this should have been a time when the family went up to worship and to experience the joy, experience the peace of God. And yet Panina turns this into a turns this sacred ritual into a nightmare for Panina, or excuse me, for Hannah, year after year. Now, I've had conversations with people over the years who have said that they don't go to church because once upon a time somebody hurt their feelings or said something unkind to them. But yet here we have Hannah 
who's experiencing the worst possible treatment she could. And yet she goes to Shiloh year after year. I don't know, maybe you've experienced hurt at the hands of someone else in church. Maybe this church or another church. And first, let me just say how deeply sorry I am that that's happened. Those things shouldn't happen. Sadly, they do. We live in a fallen world, and all of us, myself included, we we are broken people, and so we do things that we shouldn't do. But let me encourage you, if that's happened to you, let me encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus as you seek to overcome that hurt. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And if that particular, if, listen, if that particular hurt's too deep, like if, if you're thinking, like, I don't know if I can ever come back to that particular church, then you know, maybe the best thing to do is to find another church home where you say, I can, I can worship here unhindered. But don't, don't neglect the gathering of God's people. Don't neglect that. Before I get too far along, though, I want you to notice with me um, something very significant. I want you to notice how verses 5 and 6 end. They both end with the exact same six words. These are, this is super important. I underline it in your Bible. They both end with, the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. And I, I know that when we're in the midst of grave difficulty, sometimes we feel as if God has abandoned us in our hour of greatest need. But listen to me, beloved, that's never true. That is never true. God is always working in our lives, always for our good and for His glory. And so here in our story today, Hannah is beside herself in despair. She's childless. Her husband has a second wife, and that second wife is as fertile as can they come. And again, to make matters worse, the second wife is taking every opportunity she can to remind Hannah of her barrenness. But right there in the midst of all that despair, I want you to see God is at work. It's actually the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. You see, God has a plan. God hasn't forgotten about Hannah. He's got her right where He wants her. He is working in her life. Even in the midst of life's most difficult moments, God is working in Hannah's life. Reminds me of something of what Tyler said last week in his sermon. He said this, and I quote, There's hope on the other side of your hurting. God will not waste your pain. You see, Hannah is brokenhearted. She's crying all the time. She won't eat. Her, her clumsy husband, you know, aren't I better to you than ten, ten sons? Hannah's like, no, you're not. I would rather have a son. Uh, you know, she, he's trying his best to no avail. But I want you to see that God is at work in the midst of her pain. He's working in her life. And the same is true today, beloved. Even when we're brokenhearted, God is at work in our lives. He won't waste your pain. Which takes us to point number three. Promises made. Promises made. We see this uh, in verses 9 through 18. Uh, first, let's look at verses 9 through 11. Uh, we, we, we have the family, with the, with the exception of Hannah. They're finishing up the meal. This is verse 9. They're finishing up the meal. But Hannah gets up so that she can go pray in the temple. And we're told that Eli, the priest, he's, he's on duty. In my mind, I picture like a, a lifeguard. You know, you're up on the stand, and, and the lifeguard, he's on duty. That, that's where Eli, he, Eli is up in this chair. He's in his priestly chair, and Hannah is praying. 
But as she's praying, as she, she's deeply distressed and she weeps bitterly as she's praying. And in her distress, she makes a promise to the Lord. My translation says she vows a vow. And, he, and here's the gist, basically, of her promise, okay? She, basically, she says, you know, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give that son back to you, and he'll serve you all the days of his life. Just give me a son. But meanwhile, as, she, as she's praying this, her, her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out of her mouth. Now, it's not uncommon. If you've ever watched somebody pray, you might see this happen. You might see somebody, they're praying, and as they're praying, their lips are moving, but you don't hear anything coming out. It's not uncommon. But meanwhile, Eli, he's, he's watching her pray, and so Eli, in a, a remarkable lack of discernment for being a priest, comes to the conclusion, well, she must be drunk. I mean, if her lips are moving, nothing's coming out. And he even accuses her right there in verse 14 of public, public drunkenness, tells her to put away your wine. But Hannah, whose conscience is clear before the Lord, she defends herself and she explains to Eli what's actually happening. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. You know, my lips are moving because I'm in great anxiety and vexation. So it's, it's, I, I'm not a worthless woman. To which Eli responds to her. It's a beautiful response here on Eli's part. He says to her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now I want you to notice, I want you to notice the complete turnaround in Hannah's spirit. She, she, a complete 180. Verse 18, she says, she responds to Eli, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Here we have, this is the climax of the story. Earlier, she had been overcome with emotion. She couldn't eat a thing. Earlier, she couldn't stop weeping. She was so in distraught. But now, she's eating, and she's no longer sad. Promises have been made. At point number four, we see promises kept here. In verses 19 through 28, this is the promises kept. In verse 19, the family, they rise early in the morning, to worship before heading back to Ramah and after returning to Ramah. In due time, it says the Lord remembers Hannah and she has a baby boy and she names that boy Samuel. Now naturally, by the time she gives birth to this baby boy, right, it's, it's nine or ten months since the family was last on their last annual pilgrimage to, to Shiloh. And so this next time approaches rather quickly. Samuel would have been just you know a couple of months old as they prepared to take their next pilgrimage. But Hannah... The text says, the author tells Hannah decides not to go. Now, at first, we might wonder, you know, is Hannah having second thoughts? About the, you know, she made a promise. Is she having second thoughts? But we quickly learn that that's not what's happening. On the contrary, she's just waiting until the child is weaned. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how old Samuel would have been when he was weaned, but likely somewhere between, say, two and four years old would have been when he was weaned. And then we read in verse 24, look with me there. It says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Now, I want you to allow yourself, to to put yourself, if you will, in Hannah's shoes for a moment. You spent your whole life wanting a baby. 
You spent your whole life being like ridiculed because you couldn't have a baby. Try as you might, you want to get pregnant, you can't get pregnant. And then after pouring your heart out to God, there He is, your miracle baby boy. And for the next two, three, maybe four years, you love that baby. Like, no, it's nobody's business. You love that baby. You feed the baby. You watch your son take his first steps. You, you hear him say his first words. He fills your heart with joy every day. And then you remember that promise. And you prepare to bring your precious young little boy to another man's house so that that man can raise the boy. Now, I mentioned this so that we can focus our minds on the fact that this certainly wasn't an easy thing for Hannah to do. At this point in her life, she doesn't have other children. She still only has Samuel. Now, we, she will have other children later. We know that from the text later on. She's going to have other children. But right now, it's just Samuel. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through her mind, thinking about all the lonely afternoons that would come when Hannah would be thinking about her precious little boy, Samuel? Now, mind you, Samuel, again, he's only about 15 miles away. But in that day and time, it may as well have been 100. It may as well have been 1,000 miles away. She wasn't going to see him every day. She wasn't going to see him every month. She was only going to see him on a rare, special occasion. But Hannah, being the godly woman that she is, she made a promise. She made a promise to the Lord, and so she intends to keep that promise. And she brings with her a bull and flour and wine to make a sacrifice to the Lord because she knew that the Lord was responsible for her getting that child in the first place. Now, let me say that again. She knew that the Lord was responsible for her having that child in the first place. Now, I'm going to come back to that thought in just a moment. But Hannah says to Eli in verse 26, Oh, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And so Hannah reminds Eli of that moment so many years ago. Remember, I am that woman who was before you petitioning to the Lord for this child. And now the Lord has granted, she says, the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him that day. Beloved, please understand this very important truth. This is critically important for your growth in godliness. Here it is. Whatever we give to God, whether it's something small or whether it's something large or significant, whatever we give to God, we give to God because He first gave it to us. All right? Let me repeat that. Whatever we give to God, whether it's something small or something significant, we give it to God because He first gave it to us. For Hannah, she realizes that she wouldn't even have this child if it hadn't been for the Lord. And so she's willing to give this child to the Lord. Now in our day, uh, you know, we typically don't take our toddlers to the priest and say, here you go, raise, raise my toddler. We, we don't do that in our day, do we? So let me ask you this question. Maybe this will strike a little closer to home. Today in our bulletin, we're praying for the Iraqi people. As we pray, we pray regularly for different people groups all over the world. And we're praying today for the Iraqi people. And so suppose your daughter comes home from college 
and tells you that the Lord spoke to her through your through his word and she believes that God wants her to be a missionary to Iraq. She wants to share the love of Jesus with the Iraqi people. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to say? Because in your heart and mind you know that's a dangerous that's a dangerous thing to do. You know that. You know that if she goes or if he if it's, if If your child goes, they might not ever come back. You might not see them again until eternity. And so would your reaction be, you know, know, she's my daughter. And she's not going to Iraq because she's my daughter. Or would your reaction be, the Lord has entrusted this young woman to me. And I love her more than life itself. But she doesn't belong to me. She belongs to the Lord. Therefore, if the Lord is calling to her Iraq, I give her my blessings to go. Listen, that's not a far-fetched idea. Just bring something closer to home. So the pastor and his wife and their precious children who previously served the church where Brian is going, the reason there's an opening for pastor of that church is because that pastor and his wife and their precious children are, are, are in the Middle East right now going to serve Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern people because they feel the Lord calling them to do that. Now, and if any of you are thinking right now, well, there's not a snowball's chance that I would ever go to this place or that place to serve the Lord in such a day. Let me just say this. Shame on you. If right, like if automatically you have this, well, I'm not going to go serve the Lord in some place like that. Well, then shame on, shame on you. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting at all that every Christian ought to go to these places. Not, not, not for a moment am I suggesting that. But if, if, if we, if you or I, if we just I'm automatically say, well, I'm not going to do that, without saying, whatever you want, Lord, if, if, if that doesn't come first, if we just write off the possibility of obeying the Lord, then shame on us for doing that. Hannah understood that Samuel didn't belong to her. Samuel was the Lord's. And as painful as it was for her to let him go, she did just that. She rendered unto God the things that are God's. Samuel's life wouldn't be easy. We're, we'll see that as we go. It's, it's, it's not a bed of roses for Samuel. Are we willing to give to God the things that belong to God? Last point. We see rejoicing in the presence of God. Our passage concludes today with a prayer from Hannah. And in this prayer, Hannah she expresses her deep trust in the Lord. I'm going to read this prayer against verses uh, 1 through 10, but just it's a beautiful prayer. Um, it's, many people believe that Mary's, uh, what's called Mary's Magnificat, which Sharon read earlier in the service, is uh, closely parallel to this. That's why I had Sharon read that earlier. Uh, but listen to this beautiful prayer. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you, and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warrior are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings to death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. 
The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of the faithful ones. But the wicked perish in dark, darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. I, we don't have time this morning to do a full exposition on this passage. I preached just that passage a couple of years ago uh, on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so... You can look it up on our website. It's there. Um, but I want to make three brief comments about that prayer. Okay, three brief comments. First, I want us to notice how Hannah, how her focus is squarely on God. Squarely on God. In verses 1 and 2, she, my heart exalts in the Lord, and I rejoice in your salvation. And there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And so whether our life is going better than we could possibly hope for, or whether our life, we would, you would say, my life is a train wreck right now. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. He is our rock. Second point. What you see how Hannah recounts how the Lord has turned the tables. The Lord has turned the tables. In verse 4, the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. You know, so we, we normally like to think that those who are powerful in this world, that they have the upper hand. But that's not necessarily so. It's those who trust in the Lord who have the upper hand. Because the Lord can break the bows of those who are strong, and He can give strength to those who are feeble. And in verse 5, it's the ones who, who were previously full, who've had more than enough to eat. They've now hired themselves out so they can just earn enough money to get some bread. And those who were formerly hungry, Hannah prays, well, they hunger no longer. You see, the Lord reverses things. And then in the latter half of verse 5, that stands, it has to be a reference to Penina and to Hannah. She says, the barren, and remember Hannah was barren, the barren is born seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. And so Hannah is recognizing how God has been at work in her life. The tables have turned. That's the second point I want to note from the prayer. Third, is by this point in their history, the people of Israel have been waiting centuries for God's anointed one. They've been waiting for their deliverer. He hasn't come yet. Look with me, though, at the latter half of verse 10, please. It's just the, the, the last part of verse 10, where it starts with, The Lord will judge. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now, at the time Hannah is voicing this prayer, there is no earthly king in Israel. King Saul is yet to come. He's the first king. He's yet to come. King David is still even further. So who is this king? She's not talking about an earthly king. 
She's talking about a king who's yet to come. And there at the end of verse 10, we learn that this king is the anointed one. She's talking about God's anointed one. See, Hannah knew that this king was going to come, but she didn't know his name. Because of where she lived in history, she didn't know the name of this king, but she knew he was coming. You and I, on the other hand, we live from a different vantage point in history, and so we do know his name. We know who this king is. His name is Jesus. He's the one. Notice there in verse 10. He's the one who will judge the ends of the earth. He's the one who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's the one God sent to take care of the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's this Jesus. That's this King. Friends, do you know that King? Are you, are you still today in your sin? Maybe you know of that king. You say, yeah, I know Jesus. I've been to VBS. I know, I know who Jesus is. But I'm not talking about do you know who he is. I mean, do you know him personally? Have you turned from your sin to trust in Jesus? If you've never done that before, what a, what a wonderful opportunity to do that today. To turn from your sin to trust in Jesus that, that you might have life eternal. Because without Jesus, without Jesus, we're all doomed. We're all doomed to eternal punishment. But with Jesus, we can have eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the day you've given us, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful story of your sovereign hand at work, turning the tables seeing your hand at work even in the midst of her greatest despair that you had closed her womb but you had done so because you were doing a greater work in her life father i can't help but think that there are some even listening today who perhaps they're going through despair they don't know which way to turn but father that they might be assured that today even in the midst of despair that you're at work that you're at work in their life for our good and for your glory. And so, Father, if there's anyone here today who's never trusted you, Father, today, perhaps even in the midst of despair, you might give them everlasting joy in knowing Jesus. Father, for those of us who do know Jesus, Lord, that we would recognize and rejoice in the fact that you are continuing to work in our lives and you're not through with us yet. You're molding us and shaping us more and more into the image of Jesus. And for that, Lord, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.